Chapter 9 of The Frozen Pirate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Barbara Dirksen. The Frozen Pirate by W. Clark Russell. I Lose My Boat. I lingered, I dare say, above twenty minutes contemplating this singular crystal fossil of a ship, and considering whether I should go down to her and ransack her for whatever might answer my turn. But she looked so darkly secret under her white garb, and there was something so terrible in the aspect of the motionless snow-clad sentinel who leaned upon the rail, that my heart failed me and I very easily persuaded myself to believe that first it would take me longer to penetrate and search her than it was proper I should be away from the boat, that second it was scarce to be supposed her crew had left any provisions in her, or that, if stores were, they would be fit to eat, and that finally my boat was so small it would be rash to put into her any the most trifling matter that was not essential to the preservation of my life. So concluding to have nothing to do with the ghostly sparkling fabric, I started for the body under the rock, and with some pain and staggering, the ice being very jagged, lumpish, and deceitful to the tread, arrived at it. Nothing but the desire to possess the fine warm cloak could have tempted me to handle or even cast my eye upon the dead man again. I found myself more scared by him now than at first. His attitude was so lifelike that though I knew him to be a corpse, had he ridden on a sudden, the surprise of it could hardly have shocked me more than the astonishment his posture raised. As a skeleton, he could not have so chilled and awed me, but so well preserved was his flesh by the cold, that it was hard to persuade myself he was not breathing, and that, though he feigned to be gazing downwards, he was not secretly observing me. His beard was frozen as hard as a bush, and it crackled unpleasantly to the movement of my hands, which I was obliged to force under it to unhook the silver chain that confined the cloak about his neck. I felt like a thief and stole a glance over either shoulder as though, forsooth, some strange-clad companion of his should be creeping upon me unawares. Then, thought I, since I have the cloak, I may as well take the watch, flask, and tobacco-box as I had before resolved, and so I dipped my hand into his pockets, and without another glance at his fierce, still face, made for the boat. I now noticed, for the first time, so overwhelmingly had my discoveries occupied my attention, that the wind had freshened and was blowing briskly and piercingly. When I had first started upon the ascent of the slope, the wind had merely wrinkled the swell as the large bodies ran, but those wrinkles had become little seas which flashed into foam after a short race and the whole surface of the ocean was a brilliant blue tremble. I came to a halt to view the northeast sky before the brow of the rocks hid it, 
and saw that clouds were congregating there, and some of them blowing up to where the sun hung, these resembling in shape and color the compact puff of the first discharge of a cannon before the smoke spreads on the air. What should I do? I sank into a miserable perplexity. If it was going to blow, what good could attend my departure from this island? It was an adverse wind, and when it freshened, I could not choose but run before it, and that would drive me clean away from the direction I required to steer in. Yet if I was to wait upon the weather, for how long should I be kept a prisoner in this horrid place? True, a southerly wind might spring up to-morrow, but it might be otherwise, or come in a hard gale, and if I faltered now, I might go on hesitating, and then my provisions would give out, and God alone knows how it would end with me. Besides, the presence of the two bodies made the island fearful to my imagination, and nature clamored in me to be gone, a summons my judgment could not resist, for reason often misleads, but instincts never. I fell again to my downward march and looked towards my boat. That is to say, I looked towards the part of the ice where the little haven in which she lay had been, and I found both boat and haven gone. I rubbed my eyes and stared again. Tush, thought I, I am deceived by the ice. I glanced at the slope behind to keep me to my bearings and once more sought the haven. But the rock that had formed it was gone. The blue swell rolled brimming past the line of shore there, and my eye following the swing of a fold, I saw the boat about three cables length distant out upon the water, swinging steadily away into the south and showing and disappearing with the heave. The dead man's cloak fell from my arm. I uttered a cry of anguish. I clasped my hands and lifted them to God and looked up to him. I was for kicking off my boots and plunging into the water, but mad as I was, I was not so mad as that, and mad I should have been to attempt it, for I could not swim twenty strokes, and had I been the stoutest swimmer that ever breasted the salt spray, the cold must speedily put an end to my misery. What was to be done? Nothing. I could only look idly at the receding boat with reeling brain. The full blast of the wind was upon her and helping the driving action of the billows. I perceived that she was irrecoverable, and yet I stood watching, 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 my head burning with surgings of twenty impracticable schemes. I cast myself down and wept, stood up afresh and looked at the boat, then cried to God for help and mercy, bringing my hands to my throbbing temples, and in that posture straining my eyes at the fast-vanishing structure. She was the only hope I had, my sole chance. My little stock of provisions was in her. Oh, what was I to do? Though I was at some distance from the place where what I have called my haven had been, there was no need for me to approach it to understand how my misfortune had come about. 
it was likely enough that the very crevice in which I had jammed the mast to secure the boat by was a deep crack that the increased swell had wholly split, so that the mast had tumbled when the rock floated away and liberated the boat. The horror that this white and frightful scene of desolation had at the beginning filled me with was renewed with such violence when I saw that my boat was lost and that I was to be a prisoner on the death-haunted waste that I fell down in a sort of swoon, like one partly stunned, and had any person come along and seen me, he would have thought me as dead as the body on the hill or the corpse that kept its dismal lookout from the deck of the schooner. My senses presently returning, I got up, and the rock upon which I stood being level, I fell to pacing it with my hands locked behind me, my head sunk, lost in thought. The wind was steadily freshening. It split with a howling noise upon the ice crags and unequal surfaces, and spun with a hollow note past my ear and the thunder of the breakers on the other side of the island was deepening its tone. The sea was lifting and whitening. Something of mistiness had grown up over the horizon that made a blue dullness of the junction of the elements there. But though a few clouds out of the collection of vapor in the northeast had floated to the zenith and were sailing down the southwest heaven, the azure remained pure, and the sun very frostily white and sparkling. I am writing a strange story with the utmost candor, and trust that the reader will not judge me severely for my confession of weakness, or consider me as wanting in the stuff out of which the hardy seaman is made for, owning to having shed tears and been stunned by the loss of my little boat and the slender stock of food. You will say, Is it not in the power of the dead to hurt a man? What more pitiful and harmless than a poor unburied corpse? I answer true, and declare that of the two bodies as dead men I was not afraid, but this mass of frozen solitude was about them, and they took a frightful character from it. They communicated an element of death to the desolation of the snow-clad island. Their presence made a principality of it for the souls of dead sailors, and into their life-like stillness it put its own supernatural spirit of loneliness, so that to my imagination, disordered by suffering and exposure, this melancholy region appeared a scene without parallel on the face of the globe, a place of doom and madness as dreadful and wild as the highest mood of the poet could reach up to. By this time the boat was out of sight. I looked and looked, but she was gone. Then came my good angel to my help and put some courage into me. After all, thought I, what do I dread? Death? It can but come to that. It is not long ago that Captain Rosie cried to me. A man can die but once. He'll not perish the quicker for contemplating his end with a stout heart. He that so spoke is dead. The worst is over for him. Were he a babe resting upon his mother's breast, 
he could not sleep more soundly, be more tenderly lulled, nor be freer from such anguish as now afflicts me who cling to life, as if this, this, I cried, looking around me, were a paradise of warmth and beauty. I must be a man, ask God for courage to meet whatever may be tied, and stoutly endure what cannot be evaded. Do not smile at the simple thoughts of a poor castaway sailor. I hold them still to be good reasoning, and had my flesh been as strong as my spirit, they had availed, I don't doubt. But I was chilled to the marrow. The mere knowing that there was nothing to eat sharpened my appetite, and I felt as if I had not tasted food for a week. And here, then, were physical conditions which broke ruinously into philosophy and staggered religious trust. My mind went to the schooner, yet I felt an extraordinary recoil within me when I thought of seeking an asylum in her. I had the figure of her before my fancy, viewed the form of the man on her deck, and the idea of penetrating her dark interior and seeking shelter in a fabric that time and frost and death had wrought into a black mystery was dreadful to me. Nor was this all. It seemed like the very last expression of despair to board that stirless frame, to make a dwelling place without prospect of deliverance in that hollow of ice, to become in one sense as dead as her lonely mariner, yet preserve all the sensibility of the living to a condition he was as unconscious of as the ice that enclosed him. It must be done nevertheless, thought I, I shall certainly perish from exposure if I linger here. Besides, how do I know but that I may discover in that ship some means of escaping from the island? Assuredly, there was plenty of material in her for the building of a boat, if I could meet with tools. Or, possibly, I might find a boat under hatches, for it was common for vessels of her class and in her time to stow their pinnaces in the hold and when the necessity for using them arose to hoist them out and tow them astern. These reflections somewhat heartened me, and also let me add that the steady mounting of the wind into a small gale served to reconcile me, not indeed to the loss of my boat, but to my detention, for though there might be a miserable languishing end for me here, I could not but believe that there was certain death, too, out there in that high swell, and in those sharpening peaks of water off whose foaming heads the wind was blowing the spray. By which I mean the boat could not have plied in such a wind. She must have run, and by running have carried me into the stormier regions of the south, where, even if she had lived, I must speedily have starved for victuals and perished of cold. Hope lives like a spark amid the very blackest embers of despondency. Twenty minutes before I had awakened from a sort of swoon and was overwhelmed with misery, and now here I was taking a collected view of my situation, even to the extent of being willing to believe that on the whole it was perhaps as well that I should have been hindered from putting to sea in my little eggshell. So at every step we rebel at the shadowy conducting of the hand of God. Yet from every stage we arrive at, 
we look back and know the road we have traveled to be the right one, though we start afresh mutinously. Lord, what patience hast thou! I turned my back upon the clamorous ocean and started to ascend the slope once more. When I reached the brow of the cliffs, I observed that the clouds had lost their fleeciness and had taken a slatish tinge, were moving fast and crowding up the sky, insomuch that the sun was leaping from one edge to another and darting a keen and frosty light upon the scene. The wind was bitterly cold and screamed shrilly in my ears when I met the full tide of it. The change was sudden, but it did not surprise me. I knew these seas, and that our English April is not more capricious than the weather in them, only that here the sunny smile, though sparkling, is frostier than the kiss of death, and brief as the flight of a musket-ball, whilst the frowns are black, savage, and lasting. I bore the dead man's cloak on my arm, and helped myself along with the oar, and presently arrived at the brink of the slope in whose hollow lay the ship as in a cup. The wind made a noisy howling in her rigging, but the tackling was frozen so iron-hard that not a rope stirred, and the vane at the masthead was as motionless as any of the adjacent steeples or pillars of ice. My heart was dismayed again by the figure of the man. He was more dreadful than the other because of the size to which the frozen snow upon his head, trunk, and limbs had swelled him, and the half-rise of his face was particularly startling, as if he were in the very act of running his gaze softly upwards. That he should have died in that easy leaning posture was strange, however, I supposed and no doubt rightly that he had been seized with a sudden faintness and had leaned upon the rail and so expired the cold would quickly make him rigid and likewise preserve him and thus he might have been leaning contemplating the ice of the cliffs for years and years a wild and dreadful thing for one in my condition to light on and be forced to think of my heart as i have said sank in me again at the sight of him, and fear and awe and superstition so worked upon my spirits that I stood irresolute, and would have gone back there had there been any place to return to. I plucked up after a little, and rolling up the cloak into a compact bundle, flung it with all my strength to the vessel, and it fell cleverly just within the rail. Then, gripping the oar, I started on the descent. The depth was not so great, nor the declivity sharp, but the surface was formed of blocks of ice, like the collections of big stones you sometimes encounter on the sides of mountains near the base. And I had again and again to fetch a compass so as to gain a smaller block down which to drop, till I was close to the vessel, and here the snow had piled and frozen into a smooth face. The ship lay with the list or inclination to larboard. I had come down to her on the starboard side. She had small channels with long plates, but her list on my side hove them somewhat high beyond my reach, and I perceived that to get aboard I must seek an entrance on the larboard hand. This was not hard to arrive at, 
Indeed, I had but to walk round her under her boughs. She was so coated with hard snow I could see nothing of her timbers, and was therefore unable to guess at the condition of the hull. She had a most absurd swelling bilge, and her buttocks, viewed on a line with her rudder, doubtless presented the exact appearance of an apple. She was sunk in snow to some planks above the garboard streak, but her lines forward were fine, making her almost wedge-shaped, though the flare of her bows was great, so that she swelled up like a balloon to the catheads. She had something of the look of the Barca Longus of a half-century ago, that is, half a century ago from the date of my adventure, but that which in, sober truth, a man would have taken her to be, was a vessel formed of snow, sparred and rigged with glass-like frosted ice, the artistic caprice of the genius or spirit of this white and melancholy scene, who, to complete the mocking illusion, had fashioned the figure of a man to stand on deck with a human face toughened into an idle, eternal contemplation. On the larboard hand, the ice pressed close against the vessel's side, some pieces rising to the height of her wash streak. The face of the hollow was precipitous here, full of cracks and flaws and sharp projections. Indeed, had the breadth of the island been as it was at the extremity, I might have counted upon the first violent commotion of the sea snapping this part of the ice, and converting the northern part of the body into a separate berg. I climbed without difficulty into the forechains, the snow being so hard that my feet and hands made not the least impression on it, and somewhat warily, feeling the government of a peculiar awe, mounting into a sort of terror indeed, stood a while peering over the rail of the bulwarks, then entered the ship. I ran my eyes swiftly here and there, for indeed I did not know what might steal or leap into view. Let it be remembered that I was a sailor, with the superstitious feelings of my calling in me, and though I did not know that I actually believed in ghosts and apparitions and spectrums, yet I felt as if I did, particularly upon the deck of this silent ship, rendered spirit-like by the grave of ice in which she lay, and by the long years, as I could not doubt, during which she had thus rested. Hence, when I slipped off the bulwark onto the deck, and viewed the ghastly, white, lonely scene, I felt for the moment as if this strange discovery of mine was not to be exhausted of its wonders and terrors by the mere existence of the ship. In other words, that I must expect something of the supernatural to enter into this icy sepulchre, and be prepared for sights more marvellous and terrifying than frozen corpses. So I stood looking forward and aft very swiftly, and in a way I dare say that a spectator would have thought laughable enough. Nor was my imagination soothed by the clear, harping, ringing sounds of the wind seething through the frozen rigging where the masts rose above the shelter of the sides of the hollow. Presently, getting the better of my perturbation, I walked aft, and stepping on the poop deck, 
fell to an examination of the companion or covering of the after-hatch, which, as I have elsewhere said, was covered with snow. End of chapter 9 Recording by Barbara Dirksen